welcome, Neil. I said you're welcome, Neil. This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. The award-winning This is Hell, as we have won yet another award. And if we have time, I will tell you about that award after today's guest. On today's show, neoliberalism may have finally met its match. The age of trying and consistently failing to solve all of our problems with market-based, that is, for-profit solutions at all costs may finally be facing a foe it cannot conquer or compel. And who is this great savior that will allow us to survive decades of profits before people? Our hero is... Climate change? Seriously? We're going to pursue profits before people until it almost destroys the planet. And then we'll finally give up on the destructive idiocy that is neoliberalism. Turns out that solving all of our problems with market solutions leads to none of our problems really being solved, pushing them farther and farther down the road, and whole new problems arising. We'll find out why neoliberalism is so incompatible with climate change in a few. We talk to Julius Alexander McGee and... Patrick Trent Greiner, co-authors of the Monthly Review article, How Long Can Neoliberalism Withstand Climate Crisis? Julius is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Portland State University, and Patrick is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Vanderbilt. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, you want some radishes? Yes, I'm, I'm I do. Wealthy, sure. I'm wealthy in radishes and uh, not much else. Alex will have this week's hangover cure in a few, and I'll and he'll tell you what's happening on this week's show. And I will be surprising Alex with not only the reward we won, but one of our past segments is returning on here on This Is Hell tomorrow. So Alex will find out about that, as you will, later on on this morning's show. And then you can tune into tomorrow's show to hear that old segment that is returning. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Norwegian whitefish. Mm. In a May Day article at the Australian news site sbs.com.au, hangover remedies from around the world, writer Yasmin Nunn reports, consuming whitefish after a big night of drinking may sound unusual, but in Norway, it's a traditional hangover food that also forms a part of a typical Christmas feast or New Year's Day meal. Lutefisk, a dried salty whitefish soaked in lye mm, and boiled, broiled, sorry, is believed to be so rich in fish oil that it can soak up excess alcohol in your body. That does not sound scientific. <laughs> it's disgusting. Way. There's not much hard research huh, to, su- to suggest that fish oils do as a Norwegian tradition claims it does. However, a study published in Plus One 2014, a website f- featuring peer-reviewed articles, does show that omega-3 fish oil could help protect against alcohol-related neurodamage. Oh, that's something. Researchers found that in brain cells exposed to high levels of alcohol, a fish oil compound protected against inflammation and neuronal, neuronal mm. cell death. However, the research applies to more to chronic drinkers to, over the long term than one-off festive night resulting in hangover. Uh-huh. They go be fine, Chuck. <laughs> that makes this week's hangover cure Norwegian whitefish. Mm, Norwegian whitefish. That does sound delicious. And fish oil protecting your brain from alcohol. Maybe I should be taking some fish oil. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. First, breaking news. We got another email from the Conspiracy Corner that we will be sharing with you again. That's happening on tomorrow's show. We just got it right before we went on air. Didn't have a chance to look it over quite yet. I think I saw some very slanderous, maybe libelous things in there that I need to clean up before we read that on the air tomorrow. More breaking news. More things are breaking in my home, and we do not have the skill set to address said things that have been broken. 
First to break in my home during the virus, the microwave. No big deal. Easy to overcome. We only use it to heat water, milk, and warm up the cat's food. Apparently, I'm not involved in the more complicated feeding of our cats. I only give them dry food, so they'll shut the hell up. Next in breaking news in my home was the furnace. The thermostat stopped working, making it so the furnace was always on and the building was getting up to 84 degrees. Last week's breaking news involved the electrics in our gas oven that can no longer light, which means we can only cook via the stovetop or a slow cooker, or pressure cooker, cooker, both of which we got as gifts at some point, never thinking we would be depending upon any of them for our very survival during a deadly global virus outbreak. Did you know that you can make bread in a slow cooker? <laughs> yeah, me neither. I haven't tried it yet because one of the very few things we cannot get here in the neighborhood is yeast. Sure, we could do a sourdough, but I've never done a sourdough and I don't have any starter. And I don't know if you can make sourdough bread in a slow cooker. We have two new pieces of breaking news. The chain to our bedroom's overhead light snapped. No big deal. Just replaced the chain, except chain is broken off inside the globe of this fancy mission fan and light over our bed mission style kind of thing so to get in there and figure out what's wrong we're going to need a bigger ladder than any in our home yesterday we were sitting in our front window watching a heavy downpour of rain while eating lunch at the table that used to be only for plants but during the virus has become our dining table as our dining table has become my girlfriend's office while enjoying a delicious pastrami smoked turkey and mild cheddar and lettuce sandwich, we realized we were on the scene of the latest breaking news. Our front window frames now leak, and this is after we got new lintels, masonry, and tuck pointing of those very same windows at a cost of thousands of dollars 18 months ago. The lintel is the support beam across the top of the window frame. In our home, the breaking news isn't whether we can make it physically and emotionally through the virus ourselves. But if our home, our actual building, will survive, if the four walls and roof will make it through the virus. Keep tuning back in during the next, I don't know, two years of quarantine to find out how life in my, my girlfriend's home is literally falling apart. In other breaking news, you can now protect yourself from the virus with a This Is Hell medical face mask, a face mask with the This Is Hell logo emblazoned on the front so you can tell others that you think of this as hell, within which we now live. This is hell. And you can show your support for God's favorite radio show, This Is Hell. You can find them right now at thisishell.com by clicking on support and then going to This Is Hell merch. It's right there, thisishell.com. Click on support. You'll see this big merchandise splash page. You click on merch and you can see the This Is Hell face mask. When I posted what, that we got the masks finally in stock and were, they were available online, some smart-ass listener made a wisecrack that was insulting, insightful, and poignant. Krimsky responded to my post about the new This Is Hell face mask saying, I want it so badly. Give us face masks free. Chuck, you pseudo-capitalist. Of course you wanted This Is Hell face mask, which comes in both medium and large sizes, each with its own style. I would love to give them away for free, and if we had what elites like you, Krimsky, if that is your real name, call money, we would gladly give the much-needed limited edition, very, very fashionable This Is Hell face masks away, much needed, not only to protect you from the virus, but to express your feelings toward the global pandemic. But you may have heard I am the bitter, blind, broke Gaptooth radio show host, so we ain't giving them away for nothing, you freaking commie. And I know you're a commie because Krimsky is a very commie name. As for the pseudo-capitalist critique, that just hurts. Congratulations, you pinko. You made me very sullen, even sad ever since I posted that the official This Is Hell masks featuring our stylish new logo created by a listener of This Is Hell, a listener who we paid, mind you, Adam Medley. Those masks were now available online at our website when you click on support and then on merch. But let us do some close reading of Krimsky's comments, which is ironically close reading, that is. I, the only way a legally blind person like me literally reads, but also I, I read analytically the writing featured on our show. Let us do some close reading of the dirty hippies pithy remark 
about me being a pseudo-capitalist for selling PPE, which are in high demand by our listeners, who we care for so much we are more than happy to provide the much-needed life-giving medical equipment, which could be the difference between that life and death, while promoting the show you love so much and simultaneously broadcasting your own perspective on the virus with the words, this is hell, splashed across your face. If I am a pseudo-capitalist for providing a public service now and for the past 24 years of doing this show with no salary whatsoever, then let us take this term apart. First, pseudo means leather with the flesh side rubbed to make a velvety nap. No, that's suede. That's suede, sorry. Uh, how do you spell pseudo again? Okay, P-S-E-U-D-O. As an adjective, which is how it is clearly being used in pseudo-capitalist, pseudo means not genuine, spurious, or a sham. So Krimsky is claiming I'm a not genuine capitalist, a spurious or sham capitalist. That is a fake or false capitalist. Is this clearly coherent criticism constructed by Kami Krimsky culminating in a credible conclusion? After all, this is hell is really bad at capitalism. Don't get me wrong, we're really good at criticizing capitalism and being its troll, but at doing it and actually engaging in the profit-making process, not so much. Many have criticized this is hell, saying because the show does not bring in very much money at all, we do not know what we are talking about when we discuss capitalism. If we did, capitalism would be rewarding us. If I lie to them and tell them that we bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, the same people will say we should not criticize capitalism because we benefit from it. In capitalism, if you are poor, you're obviously stupid, again, poor, and don't understand, understand capitalism, so shut up. And if you are rich, you cannot criticize capitalism because you would be a hypocrite, so again, shut your damn mouth. But capitalism as a noun means a wealthy capitalist, sorry as a noun means, a wealthy person who uses money to invest in trade and industry for profit in accordance with the principles of capitalism. And none of that could be farther from the truth with us. We are not wealthy. This is hell is not a person. But as businesses have so many rights today, maybe it is. And if this is hell is a person, he's a cheapskate and kind of an abusive boss. I guess you can say by offering very classy-looking masks for these, those brave enough to make a statement about COVID-19, we are investing in trade for a very, very small profit relative to, say, I don't know, pornography. And while we, uh, and if we were in accordance with the principles of capitalism, we wouldn't have been, we wouldn't be offering. This is how face masks at a very, very reasonable price, a very small markup, considering the quality of the mask and the art and the messaging. Send by having this is hell again splashed across your face. So am I a pseudo-capitalist, as Krimsky claims? As a capitalist, I am a sham capitalist in that I am not what I purport to be. By selling these face masks, I'm not suddenly a wealthy investor, nor on our show do we or will we ever support the principles of capitalism. We put people before profits, a horrible business model, and definitely not in accordance with capitalism. This is hell is completely and only listener-supported. We do not and will not ever accept any money from any advertiser ever or from any foundation ever to avoid any conflicts of interest when it comes to our bottom line. Except in the process of getting a little taste from distributing some life-saving equipment that makes a statement. So sue me, you goddamn commies, and then use the money you win in court to buy some face masks that say... This is hell, which by no coincidence whatsoever, we will be giving away as the prize to the listener who has our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. For all of you that Alex will be announcing on tomorrow's show, right at the beginning of the Tuesday show, as he does every week. Coming up this morning, neoliberalism is so incompatible with climate change that climate change means the end of neoliberalism. We'll also tell you what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Neoliberalism has finally met its match. Unfortunately, in doing so, it may have destroyed the planet. Here to tell us why neoliberalism and the planet just don't mix. Sociologist Julius Alexander McGee and sociologist Patrick Trent Greiner are co-authors of the monthly review article, How Long Can Neoliberalism Withstand Climate Crisis? Welcome to This Is Hell, Julius. 
Hi. <laughs> and welcome to This Is Hell, Patrick. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having us on. And thank you for both of you for being on the show. Julius is assistant professor of sociology at Portland State University. His work focuses on the socioeconomic factors that contribute to and mitigate environmental degradation. And Patrick is assistant professor of sociology at Vanderbilt University. His research speaks to the ways in which inequality facilitates and even necessitates environmental degradations at the international and national level in the contemporary socioeconomic system. Julius, let's start with you. The two of you write that the climate crisis is proving to be antithetical to the neoliberal machines that define current forms of social organization. If neoliberalism is incompatible with climate change, does that mean that neoliberalism is facing inevitable doom? What would you say to those who argue climate change will make neoliberalism, if not capitalism, altogether obsolete that Thank God, climate change is here to save us from capitalism. Um, so, a few things on that. I mean, at first, I agree with you that both in terms of capitalism and neoliberalism, the climate crisis is antithetical to both. When we're talking specifically about neoliberalism and the whole sort of point of the article is that neoliberalism is sort of this totalizing um, social uh, phenomenon where we look at the market as a natural phenomenon, meaning that our interaction with capitalism is essentially the only way to exist on the planet. Um, and the reason why the climate crisis tends to be antithetical to that is that it is proving that that is simply not true, right? People need energy and energy production and energy consumption has been sort of formalized under a capitalist model. But the wholesale market, which is what we critique in the article, is specific to neoliberalism and it attempts to erase any sort of... Uh, appropriative mechanisms of using energy to actually create community and actually to exist outside of the framework of capital. And the crisis is proving antithetical to that. Um, I'm happy to get into the specifics on that, but I don't want to soak up too much time on this specific question. But some of the ways that looks is all these forest fires, particularly in California, but also looking at how the cost associated with neoliberal models is exasperating inequality such that it is actually undermining the very mechanisms that have made neoliberalism so profitable in the first place. So. But do you think that, just to follow up on that just for a second before we get to Patrick, do you think that means that it is inevitable, that it is an unavoidable thing that neoliberalism will fail? Yes, I would definitely say that's true. Yeah. Um, and just to be clear on why that is the case, is that what we're seeing in Chile right now with people protesting the neoliberal regime and the neoliberal model is specific just to the inequality that it produces. But as we start to see, you know, climate catastrophes escalate, we're going to see more resistance, more opposition, because the neoliberal model is not designed to actually help people with this crisis. It's designed to specifically profit from this crisis. And so we're going to actually see the sort of profit model that neoliberalism, neoliberalism is based on actually be undermined by the very mechanisms that it uses to actually expropriate uh, profits from people. So, so Patrick, uh, real quick, you, al you also write that reducing fossil fuel consumption, the largest contributor to c climate change, requires collaborative efforts. Is neoliberalism not being compatible with climate change driven by its foundation of a lack of collaboration? Is, is it the idea that uh, the individual comes first, that individual actions come first? Is that what is the foundation of neoliberalism that is going to be its own demise? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think that captures the heart of the issue pretty well. As uh, Julius suggested, and as you're pointing out, right, neoliberalism really is kind of telling us all to get out of the way of the market and to let the invisible hand play out as it will, so that me by taking care of my interests and you by taking care of your interests um, will both improve market efficiency, um, maximize our outputs, and ideally, right, be able to deal with any externalities like climate change. But climate change being the global problem that it is, uh, really prevents us or presents us, excuse me, with this unique challenge that we have to work together to solve. And neoliberalism um, really takes the tools away to do that. Not only does it not provide them, but it removes them from our hands. And uh, just to follow up on that, uh, Patrick, um, again, a little, just a little bit farther down in your article, it says that fossil fuels continue to be used as a form of social domination, a means to expropriate productive and reproductive labor. What do we miss in our understanding of fossil fuels when we do not understand them as a form of social domination? Are fossil fuels 
a choice only because of their efficacy as a fuel source, that its use is simply determined by science, that there is no better fuel, or are there other factors that go into the market choosing fossil fuels as our fuel? Yeah, again, really good question. I I think we talk a lot about technological efficiency, right? But when we talk about uh, energy sources and uh, the efficacy of, say, renewables relative to natural gas or another fossil fuel source. Um, But what we kind of lose sight of is that fossil fuels are incredibly economically efficient um, and technologically efficient. But really what we focus on when we choose fossil fuels is that economic efficiency. And that's what we mean by they facilitate social expropriation. Uh, Andreas Mom, in his work on fossil capitalism, I know you've had him on the show before, suggests that one of the main reasons we chose fossil fuels to kind of build up this economy on top of was the fact that we could easily transport them and that they allowed us to escape from to escape excuse me, from the limits of uh, ecological cycles, right? So now we didn't have to build plants in places where energy was readily available, like by river sources, and we could keep working throughout the day. We didn't have to stop when the sun goes away, for example. Um, And so I think uh, that's something that we often lose sight of that we have to keep in mind is that one of the things that we continually bump into and are challenged by is uh, the interests of producers who really can't force a lot of our renewable technologies and distributed energy system technologies into this expropriative and exploitative model. So, Julius, I want to ask you kind of a bigger picture, general question uh, after what Patrick just said, which is why doesn't economic efficiency align with human needs? I mean, because that's that's basically the concept of market-based solutions, private-public partnerships, neoliberalism, that economic efficiency will not only be best for the economy, but will be best for human needs. Why don't those two things line up? Or is it just that it just needs a little bit of tinkering and we can we can force these two things to line up yeah that's that's a great question so i mean one way to look at it just to kind of you know piggyback on what patrick was laying out which andres mom talks about in his book fossil capital right the idea of fossil fuels sort of uh subjugating labor to capital is central to the whole privatization model of capitalism right what fossil fuels competed with at the time of their initial introduction into markets were water mills which were much more land-based and it was really hard to control energy flows from water mills specifically because they were built next to rivers and it was a lot more difficult for capitalists who were emerging at that time to subjugate labor to capital. Um, And the reason why the neoliberal model, if I'm just kind of going back to your question, is sort of uh, doesn't uh, doesn't really produce a total social good is because under neoliberalism, the people that matter are actually workers, right? There's an entire group of individuals whose both labor and existence is seen as disposable through expropriation. Um, So even when neoliberalism sort of touts itself as something that improves the efficiency of the economy and in effect, it actually improves the general overall needs of the people, we're really only talking about a specific subset of people. Uh, And when I say that, I also mean people who actually consume energy. So that's that comment that you or that quote that you Uh, use just now, we talk about productive and reproductive labor. I mean, let's just focus for a second on the reproductive labor component of that. Those who use electricity uh, and electrical consumption for reproductive labor are explicitly seen as disposable under a neoliberal model, right? The only reason that we even have electrification at the capacity that we do that's in support of reproductive labor is so that reproductive labor can actually be subjugated to productive labor, productive labor being the labor that people perform in capitalist markets, reproductive labor being, you know, cooking, cleaning, things you do around your house. And so the extent to which we see an overall increase in public goods is associated with people's relationship to work and productive labor. But that doesn't change the fact that people don't simply cook and clean and maintain their homes so that they can go to work on time and make sure they're productive in their activities. They do it simply to live. And so there's an entire you know, subset of the population that is essentially being ignored or undermined by this wholesale model which attempts to profit off of the, you know, electrification that was put in place, you know, hundreds of years ago, a hundred years ago in the United States, uh, and is now, and, and we're now seeing um, 
we're now seeing those come to a head, specifically where you know the wholesale model is based around having consistent rates of consumption. But what we actually end up finding is that it's creating what I like to call like an opiate of the masses approach. And so in the wholesale model, what we find is that you know, even increases in efficiency, say buying a, you know, uh, energy efficient uh, refrigerator is oftentimes tailored to the needs of those who already have power and privilege under capitalism. And while that helps them out to some degree, right, their energy bill goes down somewhat because they're now using a more efficient stove or refrigerator that increases the burden and the cost of those who can't afford those things. And so the neoliberal model actually, you know, is complementary to the inequality that we've seen building since the 1970s, which is specific to neoliberalism. Julius, you and Patrick also write that renewable sources of energy have become a favored climate-conscious alternative to fossil fuels, yet renewable renewables lack many of the characteristics that have made fossil fuels so desirable in production processes, limiting their ability to expropriate human labor. To what extent is that an obstacle to switching to alternative fuel sources, Julius? Is the issue that some obstacles with technology when it comes to alternative fuel sources, or is the issue alternative fuels inability to expropriate labor that has made it so difficult to transition to alternative fuels? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so just to kind of come back at what we were saying, what I was saying earlier, but I think this is related to a broader point that I want to make is, yeah, the, the sort of benefit of fossil fuels is their ability to be a privatized commodity right? You own a plot of land where you have access to fossil fuels, and then you can distribute those fossil fuels to wherever you want. And you're simultaneously accumulating wealth as you're distributing that. And there's added value associated with the entire electrical market, right? There are people who lay the, lay the pipes down for uh, uh, oil and gas pipelines. Uh, and there are those who run independent operating systems to make sure that energy goes to the right places. Renewables lack that type of centralized value, and they also lack the sort of added value where there's not as many capital flows or consumption chains that allow different groups to profit from it. So right now, particularly in California, what we see is that the only way to make renewables profitable is to have some type of premium price associated with them. And then from there, the reason it becomes profitable is not to the energy producers, but the actual distributors, right? So companies like PG&E, who distribute energy benefit from folks who can afford to put solar panels on their homes because it reduces the overall flows of energy they have to put into households. but that doesn't actually work on a larger scale as far as increasing the profitability of energy flows, right? Because if you have a solar panel on your solar panels on your home, you're paying a substanti- substantially substantially less for your energy consumption. But the way that that sort of works in electrical systems as we see it today in wholesale markets is that the excess energy then goes back into the grid and then is fed into other households. And particularly in Oregon, so I live in Portland, Oregon, so Portland General Electric is how we get our energy. You pay a premium price if you want to get access to that excess uh, renewable energy. And that's because of the volatility of those markets, right? You have Renewable energy is not just about privatizing any type of resource. It really is, when it comes to wind and solar at the very least, I'll leave you know all the other ones out for now, uh, it really is at the whims of nature. Is it a windy day? Is it a warm day? How much energy is going to be used? Um, And your energy usage oftentimes is not determined by how much energy you have access to. It's determined by the market. And so until we find a way to actually make renewable energy sort of consistent with how we live, it's never going to be profitable. I don't think it can be profitable in my view. I mean, it can be, not, but not to the extent to which fossil fuels have become profitable. And the extent to which renewable energy can be profitable is that it's only valuable to very specific pop groups of the population who can actually afford to put in install solar panels or access renewable energy. Patrick, again, I want to ask you a little bit more of a general, I apologize for being too sweeping of a question, but businesses and corporations and their supporters in government and the media, they promoted the idea that if utilities were privatized and consumers were given a choice between competitors that would motivate innovation, then all of the inefficiencies of a state-run power grid would be eliminated, making the electricity less expensive and more reliable. Now that we have lived through 40 years of this kind of privatization, is the privatized utility industry doing any better? Do they have a record that is any better or worse when it comes to supplying electricity to customers at reasonable rates with more and more innovations that have increased efficiency and reliability? That's a really good question. I think especially 
when you're talking broadly about utilities, for example, water utilities and electric utilities, uh, it's tough to kind of characterize in one sweeping statement. I say generally, no, they haven't done better, um, or they haven't at least fulfilled the promises that uh, they suggest they were rolled out to fulfill, right? So um, they really haven't been very successful in expanding processes of electrification, for example, and rolling out hard infrastructure, um, at least not much more than others. I mean, we can take the case of the United States, for example. Um, the transition, like Julius is noting from this excuse me, vertically integrated uh, electricity production and distribution structure to this uh, unregulated, un, excuse me, unregulated wholesale market structure uh, was one that really wasn't necessary. I mean, even before we did that, the United States was kind of a marvel of electrification. Um, going back to some of our earlier conversations about the technological challenges and economic challenges that are presented to capital by renewables, right? One of the challenges from a technological side is that um, we don't really store energy, right? Or electricity, excuse me. We just have to use it as we produce it. And for renewables, this is particularly challenging, right? Because um, as renewables are produced, it's usually the times of days when we're all at work um, and we don't get to use that renewable energy. It just kind of goes to waste. And when we all get home, and go about the business of reproducing our life cycle, right? Uh, feeding ourselves, cleaning ourselves, uh, cleaning our homes and our domiciles. Um, we are drawing from fossil fuel energy sources in that instance. Um, I know that takes us a bit away from the original question, uh, but the point is really, right, in the United States especially, the um, deregulation of electricity infrastructure markets or electricity trading markets uh, really was put in place to protect profits or to expand the rate of accumulation much more than it was to fulfill any sort of social aims, I think. But Patrick, and I just, uh, uh, go oh, ahead. Go no, go it. ahead, Julius. Uh, well, I would, I, just, I would just add to that as well is that, I mean, the extent to which it's been a public good is, you know, in California, within a few years of the wholesale market being put in place, uh, PG&E went bankrupt. Um, and I, so I think there's layers to who this has benefited and who this is actually not benefited. So on the one hand, you know, you've separated distri uh, energy distributors from energy producers. Um, so in that separation, producers end up winning um, because producers are now able to look at, you know, energy consumption flows as a speculative market and say, OK, it's 5 p.m., we're going to increase the rate at which we sell energy to distri various distributors because more people are going to be consuming energy. We can turn a higher profit. That hurts distributors like PG&E, who became essentially a distributor after the wholesale model was implemented into California. So now PG&E is looking to save on cost. And what you've seen is a lot of these sort of pseudo green capitalist uh, enterprises developed to support these this separation of production and consumption. So a company, for example, by the name of Opower, kind of popped up in California as a sort of Silicon Valley startup. And exactly what they do is, you know, go into uh, energy networks, they go into homes, and they convince consumers through competitive mechanisms by showing them how much they consume relative to their neighbors to consume less energy. Um, now, that helps p companies like PG&E, because if you consume less energy, PG&E has to pay less for you to consume it. Uh, but it also creates this unique relationship between homeowners and companies like PG&E. Because what we see, if you just go on to PG&E's website or any energy distributor's website, they have all of these rebate programs that attempt to incentivize uh, energy efficiency gains. So, you know, you can get rebates on buying, you know, electric stoves that are more energy, energy star qualified and things like that. Uh, but that's only really available to homeowners. So they are in combination with the distribu distribu uh, distribution companies uh, to benefit equally, right? So now you're paying less for energy because you have more energy efficient appliances. Uh, and now distributors are paying less to distribute that energy to you. But at the bottom of that are all of those renters or people living in what we call energy or fuel poverty who are generally choosing between eating and how much energy they're going to consume and they're renting. They don't they can't put in the necessary uh, renovations into their homes because they're renting to increase to increase insulation to reduce their energy bills. So they lose out in the long run because, you know, people who can afford these things have more disposable income in the long run. So maybe, you know, if we're going to be generous to the wholesale model, perhaps it's reduced overall the cost of energy for all consumers, but it's only resulted in this reality of a combined and uneven development where homeowners are now benefiting much more than, you know, renters or people living in energy and fuel poverty are. And so it's only exasperated inequality, even if the general good has been best for all. 
Um, so I think that that's something that's worthwhile to consider when we're talking about it. There's layers to who it actually benefits. And you mentioned how this kind of wholesale energy market, it was originated in Chile, uh, Chile after Augusto Pinochet had the coup that overthrew Salvador Allende and his brutal dictatorship. Uh, he, by the guidance, as you point out, of Chicago school economists, uh, they came up with an idea of how to privatize energy. The newly established economic structure and institution commonly referred to as a wholesale energy trading market was intended as a way to profit from electricity distribution without increasing the retail price paid by consumers, and at first appeared to do so. After the introduction of wholesale trading in Chile, the model quickly spread across the world. So, Julius, these wholesale energy markets have nothing to do with actually providing energy, correct? Is, Is this just setting up a legal way to gamble on energy, energy that humans who are lucky enough to have shelter depend upon for things like light and heat and refrigeration is this has absolutely nothing to do with actually providing energy and only about gambling on energy yes precisely i mean and look no further than enron right which is sort of a company that now i think lives in our collective psyche as the hallmark of you know a greedy corporation on wall street um you know they were the ones that benefited the most from these types of modeling techniques and they're responsible for pg&e's bankruptcy in 2001 so yes i mean i i couldn't put it better myself that this is just nothing more than creating a mechanism to gamble off of essentially turning energy flows into their own sort of pseudo stock market i'm using the word pseudo now because i was listening to your opening and i liked i liked it quite a bit so now pseudo stuck in my head Um, yeah. So, uh, so Patrick, then what happens, what do you think happens when what we need for not only our convenience, but our survival is made vulnerable to the vagaries of speculators? What happens? Well, I, I think we see it happening, right? Um, in Chile, we saw rate increases that were necessary in order to actually make renewables a possibility in that market structure, to make them competitive. Uh, with the fossil fuels that were already dominating the market system. And uh, those rate increases led to this massive, uh, in many ways, still ongoing protest uh, among Chileans, uh, not just in response to the establishment of the wholesale trading market, though that certainly was part of it. And uh, in many people's views, what kicked off the the issue, along with the work done by uh, the AM uh, uh, feminist movement. Um, but they also, oh, but we see the same thing in California, excuse me, right, with uh, PG&E deciding to actually introduce rolling blackouts in order to really protect their shareholders. Um, as they're going through bankruptcy, right, shareholder payouts uh, fall to sort of the bottom of the list of priorities for who they pay. And so uh, last year, when things got a little iffy and they just decided to turn off electricity to several hundred thousand customers all at once, many of whom are in vulnerable uh, physical states, right? Um, They, in doing that, ultimately protected their shareholders by preventing really these customers, the the population at large, the people, from being able to access something that's fundamental to their life. So, uh, Julius, you write that according to its proponents, the wholesale energy market in Chile had the benefit of separating the business of energy production from the business of distributing energy to the public. It was believed that this separation would benefit end users and improve the efficiency of energy systems by inducing competition between firms. Despite this tagline, the faults in Chile's wholesale energy market are now visible to all. One of the most glaring fissures is manifesting itself in the ongoing struggle to introduce renewable sources of energy without increasing the cost of electricity to households. Why does the market become a barrier to innovation when it promises to be a motivator of innovation? Why doesn't the market create the competition, create the motivation that leads to innovation like it promises? Yeah, I mean, the, what's always fa- so when I was doing this research for this paper, I mean, what's fascinating is how it's all just so speculative. Um, and so even all the problems are sort of their own, they only exist because we're preemptively attempting to address problems that don't exist already. So in Chile, I think, I can't remember the percent, I mean, it was something, something yeah, I believe it was like a 9% increase in uh, uh, electricity cost. 
after there was going to be this huge increase in renewable energy distribution. But because energy flows are hard to predict, even in the Atacama Desert, which is where they built this, they're building these new giant uh, solar farms, which is, you know, supposed to be the largest in the world, it's still, you know, it's still predicated on the whims of ecology. So it's, uh, there is fears initially when this was being introduced that, um, energy providers would be reluctant or investors would be reluctant to invest in this type of energy without some extra security uh, based on our, you know, all these unknowns. And so the extra security came from consumers who we just basically said, let's have them pay more so that even if there are, you know, off days or there are some unforeseen problems, you have some back security and that now you're uh, your customers are going to be paying a higher rate. What I find fascinating about that in particular is that this is the exact same mo- uh, uh, point that was implemented in California to address the bankruptcy of PG&E, right? PG&E, you know, sort of, I know this is getting a little ahead, um, but I think it's relevant here. So, you know, PG&E introduced this $2.50 surcharge in 2001, or the, the state of California did, to uh, help PG&E emerge from bankruptcy. And that was because after the model the wholesale model was introduced, PG&E wasn't allowed to increase uh, rates. But we also had a historic drought in the Pacific Northwest, and a good chunk—I think it was about 20 to 25 percent of California's energy—comes from the Pacific Northwest, particularly dams, hydraulic dams in Oregon and Washington. Uh, Enron bought at that time Portland General Electric and saw like a very, you know, sort of rubbing their hands greedy moment when they looked at this drought and they increased the cost of hydraulic energy flowing into California substantially, which then hurt energy distributors who had to pay whatever rate was being sold to them. Uh, And they claimed that this is because of this historic drought and that there was just not as much energy. But because PG&E couldn't increase the bill of its ratepayers to, you know, absorb some of those costs, they just fell into bankruptcy. So that $2.50 surcharge that was added to the bill just to keep people out of bankruptcy remained intact. And it's been used in many different ways. But now what it's going to be used for is a slush fund for electricity providers across the state of California in case they are implicated in any future environmental catastrophe so they can draw out of that fund. Now, PG&E is not, as of now, they're not allowed to use that fund until they emerge from bankruptcy. So they're kind of, you know, having their foot on the gas pedal to make sure that they can access that fund because they they stand to benefit and benefit the most from the availability of those funds. But again, what we see is that in order to re- retain some type of economic viability to this wholesale market, we see states explicitly extracting revenue from people in the service of capital accumulation, which to me, which is why we wrote that sentence, really does truly reveal the reality of this system, which is it was never really about increasing the efficiency of energy. It was looking at an outdated monopolistic structure of a market and trying to figure out new paths to increasing profits. And it did that by, you know, you know, similarly to, you know, fossil fuels in the beginning. They did it by subjecting labor to ca- uh, the flows of capital even further by separating distributors and producers, which created an additional chain of like chain of energy production that allowed some groups to benefit. And at the very bottom of that are ratepayers who are just paying extra funds just to protect the market structure. But as uh, Julius was just saying, Patrick, uh, so the public had to bail out PG&E. Why did the public have to pay off a private debt? Could the public have moved on? Could they still have the access to electricity they had with PG&E if PG&E had merely gone away? I guess my question is, what did the people get by bailing out PG&E? Was it at <laughs> least deprivatized? What do they get out of this? <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's the several billion dollar question, right? Um and as far as I can tell, they, they don't get much except for uh, essentially a guarantee that they'll have to do it again in the future, right? And that's what we see happening right now is that $2.50 surcharge emergency fund is rolled over from the early 2000s to be called upon again for PG&E in 2020, assuming they can actually wrap up their bankruptcy uh, by June 30th. But, you know, a lot of people, about half the people that have been polled on this issue uh, actually really do want to see a transition to a publicly owned utility structure uh, to help deal with a lot of these issues. And so I I think most people are aware they don't get anything from this, that uh, they'd be uh, much better served by a utility that they owned and had direct control over. 
I'm also concerned, Patrick, about any risk that they may not have anymore, PG&E, that is, uh, because you and Julius write that this tactic of expropriation mirrors those used by financial markets to stave off economic crisis and is a hallmark of neoliberalism with a new safety net in place. PG&E was able to emerge from bankruptcy by 2004, but the surcharge used to bail out PG&E remained intact nonetheless. This surcharge has now transformed into a disaster fund that the state of California intends to use to bail out its utilities in case they are are liable for future fires. So, Patrick, what risk does that eliminate for PG&E? If they are impervious to lawsuits, what kind of lawsuits? For what are they trying to avoid any potential responsibility? Because I want to know what this disaster is that they see coming, that they're trying to make sure that they don't have any risk for that disaster. Right. So, I mean, in the current situation, let's just take the current situation as an example, right? They were facing over $50 billion in claims and managed uh, over the process of this like bankruptcy negotiation to whittle that down to about half to $25 billion. Um, But that's including everyone that they owe claims to, some of which are, are really quite big hedge fund firms and investors themselves, like uh, Baupaus, for example. And, and those hedge funds own 52% of PG&E at this point in time. Um, so there's really, uh, back to your this question, the, the benefit is really entirely to the company, right? As like you say, the things that they're worried about, um, these deep financial liabilities, but even some uh, social and civil charges, right? Like they were charged with 84 counts of manslaughter, for example, are, are things that they can be forgiven for um, while they still are able to access and enjoy all of the profits that they get from very poorly serving the public. And Julius, you and Patrick write that in addition to destroying the livelihoods of thousands, these fires have become a nightmare for one of neoliberalism's most coveted markets, and that is insurance. Why, Julius, is insurance so important in neoliberalism? What does that tell us? What should that reveal to us about neoliberalism? Yeah. So I, I, before I get, I, this is related, I promise I don't go too long, but um, before I get into that, just going back to what makes this neoliberalism is the reformulation of the state. And so the reason why we call it neoliberalism instead of just regular old capitalism is that it, you know, while capitalism in its sort of raw form uses the state to sort of protect, you know, the interests of capital from labor, you know, after World War II, that was sort of restructured. And one of the ways in which we envision the state protecting uh, the interest of capitalists was to give concessions to labor so that it left labor with some resources intact so that it quilled some unrest. Neoliberalism flips the script back to its original model, but what we have now in place are these absorbent amounts of government programs that are intended to support labor, and capital is essentially seizing those revenues back by through the state. And so when we look at this wholesale model, the fact that the surcharge was put in place by a state entity, by the state, by the state of California, it is an explicit example of what we see in neoliberalism, where now taxes are being lobbied against the poor and service of capital accumulation. So that's just you know, one way of looking at it. But when we talk about insurance, which is a specific question, um, you know, in general, I always just like to put it bluntly, insurance is sort of a scam, right? Because you don't get paid enough to be able to afford any type of renovations to your home in case disaster strikes, an insurance company comes up and says, well, hey, you pay into this fund, you know, you know, every month. And in case anything happens, we will front the bill. Um, now, this poses huge problems when you have these large fires, because really what you're seeing is two giants of you know, neoliberalism fighting, duking it out here with insurance companies being one. Right? We've, all, we've even seen in California some neighborhoods, uh, insurers have refused to insure homes because of the volatility of those markets, which really, again, reveals the reality of insurance. If the whole point of it is just simply to protect people, you know, then just do that. But it's no longer profitable with the ecological volatility of where some of these homes are uh, built for insurance companies to actually provide insurance to these homes. And so a lot of the claims that are made against PG&E are actually insurance claims. It's these insurance companies who are saying, we had to pay out all this money, which was never intended to be the case, to all of, these, uh, to all of your customers, to all of these people who are hurting these fires. And that falls on you because you didn't update these power lines. So you need to pay us back for what we paid out to customers already. And it's interesting when you read these articles, you pull up Forbes or the Wall Street Journal, that doesn't really get into the specifics of that. It really makes it seem as though, you know, these insurance companies are representative of people. 
But really, it's the people have been paid to some degree by those who are insured, and it's insurance companies looking to obtain revenue, get revenue back. Um, and so when I say that, you know, that's another neoliberal model, it's that, again, it's another, to quote David Harvey, it's more accumulation by, you know, dispossession, more or less, right, saying that you're going to, like, we're going to force you into relationships where if you own a home, you have to have insurance that's done by the state and implemented. So now you're paying flows to flows, uh, you're paying money into these giant corporations that are going to be used to accumulate more profit. And, you know, at best, you may get an insurance claim if your house burns down in a fire. Um, but in reality, that's just simply theft. I mean, it's no other way to look at it, that these insurance companies are simply taking money from people um, under the premise of protecting them. But then once they have the opportunity to protect them, they look to seize their assets back which sort of reveals the reality of the circumstances, which is that insurance, while it does exist to protect people to some degree, that only exists because people aren't paid enough money to be able to afford these renovations in the first place. So insurance companies are essentially leeches off of the market that uh, you know benefit from the general relationships between capital and labor. So Patrick- yeah, I could hop in on that actually. Go I'm ahead, sorry. go ahead. Um, I, I think that the current case in California, again, is a really good illustration of this, right? Because of the roughly $25 billion that PG&E is now going to be paying out to people that were harmed by the wildfires related just to their infrastructural failures, right? Um, $11 billion of that is earmarked to pay insurance claims in cash. Uh, $13.5 billion is earmarked to pay out victims, so that is individuals and members of the public. But of that $13.5 billion, at least half, it seems, is going to be paid out in PG&E stock. And they're also uh, estimating that half based on future projected stock prices rather than current stock prices. So uh, really, it's the population, the people that actually experienced harm from the wildfires that get the shortest end of the stick here. While we see uh, insurance companies' profits really, for the most part, protected. Not only the shortest end of the stick when it comes to price, but also when it comes to reliability and efficiency. You write, an outcome of this expropriation is the increasing social and political disposability of those who have been expropriated. The people who rely on energy to survive are being hurt at no fault of their own. They are simply living their lives at the mercy of energy providers who see them as a source of capital rather than as human beings. So uh, in, so why is it? Why is that the case? Why is Why do we have the situation where this expropriation continues at the rate that it is. What does that tell you about neoliberalism, that it's just not slowing down in any way whatsoever, Patrick? Yeah, I think that's a really hard question. Um, maybe Julius has some other thoughts on it too, but I, I think that really what we see is, one, there's kind of maybe some popular complacency that's starting to slip away as climate change. Um, and, and also, I mean, related the other natural systems like the development of this pandemic that we're all sitting through right now begin to really illustrate the way that we are kind of ignored and business is protected. Um, and that was a big part of us kind of finishing on that note that as long as we're willing to accept this notion that like the economy comes first, that businesses come first, and that our well-being is something that we can only consider afterwards, rather than considering the economy as a way to facilitate the growth of well-being, um, we're going to continue to see neoliberal, uh, we could say, machines or mechanisms propagated across our society, and we'll see them continue to fail to protect the people. Um, even as they likely will continue to succeed uh, to grow the rate of profit. Uh, Julius, I guess what I was trying to get at is that uh, are these rolling blackouts that we see that PG&E is applying with this kind of economic model, do you think that these rolling blackouts are going to be something that's going to happen nationally? Is this the new economic model that all power grids will face as long as we have these privatized uh, utilities? It's hard to say for sure. I mean, I'd have to know about other, you know, ecologically volatile spaces where there's um, flows of energy. But I imagine the, the, the short answer is yes, um, because when you look at what PG&E is doing with all of this, right, they're shutting off power because the structure of the wholesale market and even before that, the structure of the sort of monopolistic market. Uh, was such that these these updates, which potentially hurt people, were put on the back burner because there was no there was no sort of the, the state wasn't forcing them to update these things. And so, I think we write in the paper that we're fortunate that this has only come to a head now. 
But when PG&E is choosing to shut off power, they're looking at their bottom line, right? They're looking at, well, if these fi- if we do spark a fire, which is an if, we're going to be held responsible for these fires. Uh, and so rather than p- obtaining that risk, let's cut off power. And the reason why I think that you got to look at this in its totality of history, the reason why that becomes problematic is that, you know, at this at this stage, this late stage of capitalism, people, most people who live in the United States or a good large portion of the population relies on energy to provide their basic needs. And they have no knowledge outside of how, you know, outside of electricity to how to provide those needs. And that was the, you know, the general approach. That was the point of introducing electrification in the first place was to subject labor to capital to say, hey, look, you have access to electricity and this is a general public good, but as a result, now you can uh, you can rely on this resource to produce all reproduce all your basic needs, and we can profit from your basic needs in addition to profiting from your labor. Um, and what we see today, when PG&E is shutting off power, is it's not really taking note of that responsibility that it could put that is sort of put intact by simply saying that you know electrification is going to be the way of the world. Now the stories we tell ourselves historically is that this is just the will of the people. People desired this. But if you look back in history, when electrification first started in the United States, it didn't really take off until electricity was able to simultaneously provide increased efficiency for reproductive labor in the form of electric appliances, but also in the form of entertainment. So once the radio hit, then you saw people being more, you know, able and willing to, you know, invest in electricity because what they got out of that was more leisure time and uh, as a result of, you know, electric electricity used for reproductive labor and subsistence living. And then they also, you know, supplement at that time or use that time to listen to the radio. So it became this totalizing effect. And I think like if I'm just looking like, in terms of what we could have done differently here is that had we, you know, properly assessed the structure of electricity flows up until this point and PG&E knew, you know, decades ago that this was a potential problem. And had we known that PG&E could have been pushed into updating those power lines such that they wouldn't produce this problem. And what we're looking at is really, you know, operations that are going to go on for decades. It's going to take PG&E, even with their vast amount of resources, substantial amount of time to actually update those power lines. And in the meantime, people are using those energy flows to survive. And had PG&E gotten started on this, you know, when they first figured it out, there wouldn't have had to be any rolling blackouts because aside from maybe some that would have been put in place for a short period of time as they were updating certain power lines, but they would have actually been able to protect people uh, from potential fires in addition to providing more efficient forms of energy. I mean, some of these power lines are 100 years old. They can easily be updated in the first place. They probably should have been a long time ago. So yeah, that's my response. (laughs) We have been speaking with sociologists, Julius Alexander McGee and Patrick Trent Greiner. They are co-authors of the monthly review article, How Long Can Neoliberalism Withstand Climate Crisis? Even though we've been talking about it for about 47 minutes, I'm telling you there is so much more in this article. You have to go to the monthly review website. We have a direct link to the article at our website, thisishell.com. You've got to check out this writing. It is really fantastic work. Julius is assistant professor of sociology at Portland State University. Patrick is assistant and professor of sociology at Vanderbilt. Our, we have one last question for each of you. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Let us start with Patrick. So Patrick, so the same failed market approach that we applied to the privatization of utilities is now being applied to climate change. To what extent do we simply not know how to collectively respond to our energy demands or the planet planet's uh, climate crisis do we not have the institutions or practices that could address climate change are we just not organized that way and we don't know any better so there is no alternative out of ignorance yeah that's a good question from hell the difficult part of that question is we have kind of maybe a, a breadcrumb of clues of how we could respond. Like we've seen responses to crisis that fell on uh, Keynesian approaches, right? That some people are calling into favor right now. So, um, well, I won't go into any of the examples for the sake of time. But uh, I think one important thing to keep in mind in this is that. Uh, it really is an issue of organization and neoliberalism has served to kind of uh, undo all the institutions, right? And the the social uh, solidarity and uh, 
forms of organization that we put in place over the last century. Um, we spent 40 years or so undoing those various mechanisms and institutions that might serve us well right now. So I, I do think we have a long road ahead of us to rebuild those things back up and to kind of find our way again. And Julius, you and Patrick write, it is clear that the people of Chile have had enough with widening inequality and took to the streets in protest, as have others around the globe, such as the yellow vests in France. What impact, Julius, do you think the virus will have on that kind of uprising that was taking place pre-virus? Will it kill it off or will it embolden it? Will sheltering in place make any revolution impossible or can an uprising overcome quarantine and when we do go back outside the world that will await us, we'll no longer have neoliberalism? Um, so just the, uh, the direct response would be we're already seeing how particularly in Chile, right? They, Even though they said they would ratify the constitution, I think on April 26th, they have not done that. And that seems to be related to COVID-19. Although the speculation is that that is simply to, you know, sort of work around this and not actually put these things in place. We've also seen in Chile uh, curfews be implemented, even though there hasn't really been too many stay in place orders and all the measures that have been taken have been taken to protect capital. And so there's suspicion that this shelter in place order is simply is being used as an opportunity to quill unrest that's being that's already been produced in Chile. We just saw a recent protest in February, I believe, uh, at a university, which was tied to the same protest. And so I think that it is the, you know, neoliberalism goes to its own textbook and it looks at these crises as an opportunity to expand inequality, to profit from these crises. And so a lot of these movements just need to stay vigilant. And make sure that they're, you know, maintaining this conversation, maintaining this energy and pushing things back. Um, and the grand scheme of things, I have I, I have doubts that COVID-19 would have the effect of actually reducing uh, unrest. It would, it's going to simply increase it. Unfortunately, here in the United States, that unrest is mostly being seen in the form of, you know, right wing res- resistance to stay at home uh, measures. But I think something that is a potential good of all of this is that people who are staying at home have to sort of reorient themselves to the nature of work and how they live, right? They're no longer going into work. They're embedded in communities. And I feel like the United States in particular is really difficult. It's hard pressed for people to live within community, to actually live with people, not live independent of other individuals and live off of people, but to live with them. And I think this gives us an opportunity to really start doing that. Um, I did want to respond just real quick to the question you had asked, Patrick, just, you know, one thing also that I think is, you know, sort of really difficult in all of this for people to wrap their heads around and why we don't really know we can address this crisis is we have to look to the people who have done this in the past. And so I think in particular, there are indigenous communities that have already worked towards healing to looking at some of these problems and looking at our relationship with Earth and the planet in a more healing capacity. And the first step is acknowledging that we've made a mistake. And then giving power to those who have been most hurt by that mistake and allowing them to sort of lead the way for solutions. And I think that that's something we actually need to be doing right now because we're kind of running out of time. <laughs> we need to give people, put the power into the hands of people who have been most hurt and allow them to lead the way. So I'm guessing that neither of you think that baseball is going to save us. <laughs> Definitely not. Well, right. baseball is fun. <laughs> All right. Thank you both, uh, Julius and Patrick. I really appreciate both of you being on the show this week. This has been a fantastic conversation. It's really fantastic writing over at the Monthly Review. Again, the article is How Long Can Neoliberalism Withstand Climate Crisis? Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. My pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell right now. This would be time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. But alas, Ronaldo's work got the best of him this week, so rotten history will return next Tuesday, as Monday is Memorial Day, and in memory of actually having days... We're taking Memorial Day off. Alex, please tell everybody who's on the rest of this week's shows. Oh, sorry. I got two buttons to deal with. That's okay. Uh, Okay. Uh, So on Tuesday, we're going to be talking with Ariella Aisha Azoulay about her book, Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism. And then on Wednesday, Eugene McCarr will be on to talk about his, get this, Chuck, 630-page book, The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. Aisha's book, I think, is 632 pages. I think they're about the same length. 
uh, Mammon? Mammon? Does it rhyme with Hamon? Mammon. Mammon. Uh, that'll be Gigi McCarr. That's on Wednesday. And then Thursday, Henry Giroux will be on to talk about uh, radical politics and pandemic nightmares. And uh, Jeffy will be doing a m- moment of truth. Alex will be revealing this week's question from hell tomorrow. The listener with our favorite answer this week wins a This Is Hell face mask, which you can get right now by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, and going to the merch section of our site. Also, Alex, tomorrow we are bringing back Twist Off Knowledge from the great people at National Beer. For those who did not hear this segment in the past, when we did it every week, National Beer is the only beer that comes in a can with a twist-off cap. Inside that cap is a hieroglyph, a pictograph, a rebus, if you will, that imparts unto you the soon-to-be-drunk drinker of National Beer some twist-off knowledge. Trivia unlike what you hear anywhere else. Why National Beer? Because National Beer of Peshtigo, Wisconsin, is the absolute best beer you can possibly imagine. I guess Krimsky was right. I am a pseudo-capitalist. We ran out of time, so we will have to tell you about an award we won that put us in company with Michael Moore and Doug Henwood and a whole bunch of other old white dude producers and podcasters. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Julius and Patrick. Thanks to Alex. Thanks to Ronaldo, who's been giving us rotten history for so long. Special thanks to Theron Humiston, who built these here studios pretty much, and Richard Norwood for maintaining our archives. There's only one way to get over all of the problems. No, I don't want to do that one. Let's do a different one. How about this one? This is not the media. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>